This week's episode is brought to you by the critically acclaimed drama Queen Sugar from Oscar-nominated filmmaker Ava DuVernay, executive producer Oprah Winfrey, and Warner Horizon scripted television. The series returns for season two with a two-night premiere June 20th and 21st on OWN. The Guardian says Queen Sugar is a sweet success, Essence raves that it is gorgeous in its honesty, and TV Guide magazine calls it powerful. For your Emmy consideration in all categories. Hi, welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On today's episode, we're talking about Fargo with Noah Hawley, Mary Elizabeth Wenstead, and Marn Littlefield. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Deborah Birnbaum, and it's my pleasure to welcome the team behind Fargo. We've got Noah Hawley, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and Warren Littlefield. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Exactly. <laughs> so congratulations on season three. Thank you. It's, uh, we're almost done. We, I haven't seen the last two yet, but we wrapped last week. So, How did it feel approaching the season, filming it so close to airtime? Uh, a little bit like, you know, the old... Uh, Roadrunner cartoons where it's like you pull up the wind, the shade on the window and the train's coming. Um, you know, it just meant there was really no room for for error. And if you if I looked at a cut and I needed something, I had to get it right away. So there was a mad scramble to go shoot some more material for for an episode like three days later. And, you know, but everyone reacted really quickly. And you know. we we always figure out a way to jump off a cliff a really high cliff um, into the abyss um, on Fargo and year two was the year um, and the size of the cast and and those ambitions and year three I think it was okay we're going to start in January and we're going to be on the air in April Um, but everyone rises to it there's something magical that happens for all the cast members and and the crew of we're in the dead of winter in Calgary and we're doing Fargo and so let's go why did you decide to make that decision to rush it to film uh, well, I didn't want to be off the air for two years. I mean, the FX has been really uh, accommodating in terms of, of making sure that the that the, the show is there before we put it on the air and that, you know, we don't have to hit an air date. But, you know, 18 months off the air is different than 24 months off the air. And then also you do get out of the cycle in a way. We, we premiered in October last time, and it, it's a little bit, you know, you sort of become the forgotten thing at the end of the at the end of that cycle or the very beginning of an Emmy cycle like that. So I just it just felt like we should be on the air in April and and we'd have to make the sacrifices to just get it right the first time. So FX said, can you make this air date in mid April? And of course we said yes. We had no idea if we actually could deliver on that, but we said yes. And you all seem reasonably alive and well? Oh yeah. No, I think it was – we have fun. I mean, that's the thing is you, you do six impossible things before breakfast, right? And then and then it becomes part of the point of pride of it is, you know, you don't have unlimited time and unlimited resources. And, and you know, you just go out there and show them how it's done. 
Mary, how did it feel from you from the acting point of view? Um, I think, yeah, I think everything they've said is so accurate, particularly about how everybody rises to the occasion. I mean, every script, and more so with each one as it would go on in the season, I would just think, how? <laughs> <laughs> really? On television? How do we do this on this schedule? Um, but everybody's so invested in it from top to bottom, across the board, everybody um, loves to be on a show that's this good, you know, and that was something really inspiring to talk to, like, the drivers and the Teamsters and to have them feel like they're a part of something special and they get to witness something really cool, even if it means they're working insane hours and everybody's exhausted all the time. There was really um, almost no complaining from anyone ever that I heard, you know, we're, like, freezing our butts off and we're <laughs> exhausted and we're all getting sick um but you just know that you're making something good and it's like you're all in it together um so it was a very rare kind of experience that way i think what did it mean to you to join the show were you a fan of the previous seasons yeah um i mean noah and i had met a couple of times over the past couple of years and talked about you know wanting to do the show or you know whether or not i was available and um, you know, the first season, obviously, I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't know how brilliant it was going to be. And then by the time this came around, I had caught up and I knew that it was something that I would be so incredibly lucky to be on at all. So I was really like, I'll do anything, you know, I'll be a cameo or I'll be in one episode or, you know, whatever. Um, so I didn't know that it was going to be this role and that it was going to be this fun. So it was kind of a pleasant surprise when I read the script and saw what I was going to be playing because I was I was on board regardless, you know, no matter what it was going to be. You do have the best character name ever. I do, I do. <laughs> I hope she goes down in, in Fargo history for that, at least. We we joked with Ewan that we were going to do a spin-off, the Swango and Stussy, Private Investigators. Oh, yeah. yeah. In Santa Barbara. In Santa Barbara. Right, exactly. I don't know why Santa Barbara became the thing, <laughs> yeah. but it just fit. Yeah. It just made it, sense. It was a, a, a reasonable commute for you two. <laughs> exactly. Um, just like and, a really uh, and then we all decided that was an awful idea <laughs> yeah. after the wonderful television no. we'd been making. <laughs> Coming next season. Right. I'm still pushing yeah. for it. I think it's up. a good idea. I mean, like I've seen worse ideas on television. Friday night at 10. <laughs> Ewan said he would pay me right. to do it. So. <laughs> there you go. How does she fit? And, you know, Fargo's has an incredible universe of female characters. How does she fit into that universe? I think, I mean, what I love about her is I don't think I've seen anyone exactly like her in the Fargo universe or the Coen brother universe, but I think she takes bits from a lot of other characters and and people that I've I've seen. Um, so there's something about her that works so naturally in it, but I feel like I, I get to create something new, um, which I guess is sort of the model of the show itself. It fits in this world, this tone that was sort of created by the Coen brothers, but every season and every episode, it becomes expanded somewhat beyond that and stands on its own as its own thing. So I kind of hope that that's what I've managed to do with this character. And I don't know, it made it very easy for me by by writing something so vivid and unlike anything else that I've played before or seen before. So I feel like I didn't have to work too hard at, at doing that. It was sort of inherently there. Noah, why did you want to cast Mary? What did you bring to the role? Well, uh, you know, I think from, from the movie, obviously, that there's a real female identity to Fargo. Uh, and... It was something in the in the first year. There was a sort of direct one to one correlation of Marge to Molly, and that in that sense that that you know you have a female law enforcement officer. And then in the second year we weren't going to do that, uh, and and so but I definitely wanted to keep the female identity. 
but it then allowed me to sort of broaden it and say, all right, well, the the female identity of the show is Jean Smart and it's you know Rachel Keller and and it's Kirsten obviously, and then and then this year we you know we went back to a female officer with Carrie Coon and then Olivia Sandoval, but you know by that point I was sort of addicted to to these really compelling unpredictable female characters and you know the thing with Nikki I really liked the underdog quality of her and Ray and and I liked the fact that um that she's the strategist she's the smart one you know and and the one you underestimate maybe because she's pretty and maybe because she has this checkered past and and uh um, and also that, that that there was this real love between them, this honest, like they actually love each other. It's very sweet. And, and you know, I mean, I think with, with Mary, you get all of those elements. There's a, you know, just, just cover your ears. There's just like a... Um, <laughs> she is, in fact, covering her ears. <laughs> yeah, just, there's just such an intelligence and a presence and a... Yeah, you know, it, it it's, it's hard to describe. I, you know, I don't try to overanalyze it but I will say that that the more um, you know because I added this whole bridge that they were competitive bridge players into it because um, I thought it was a really fun way to to show that she was a strategist and, and, and to give them something aspirational that they weren't just trying to get by they wanted something positive and, and they're a team yeah and they're a team yeah and and um, I got an email yesterday from the head of the American Contract Bridge Association. Amazing. Like, oh my God. <laughs> to reach out. So I think I'm going to do that interview. Um, but, you know. How did they get that exclusive? <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, and the language of bridge is so great. And, and then, you know, we had a conversation like where is she from and this mm-hmm. idea of the Chicago accent, which I think really also kind of created this great dynamic. And, and yeah, so it's, it's the fun of it is, mm-hmm. is inventing it. Well, that was so. I mean, the bridge thing was so great. Like you say, it just says so much about her, uh, just simply by the fact that she plays bridge and that she's so passionate about it. So, so many of those kind of details just made her so much easier to play. And I keep being asked, you know, like what we talked about. And we talked about some things, but I didn't have, I didn't like come to him with like a you notebook full of questions or anything because the details that were written in were so clear. Um, in terms of who she was. So it, it, it made it kind of easy to know her. Did he tell you the full arc of the character, what was going to happen over the course of the whole season, or did you just sort of get episode by episode? Um, a little bit. I, he gave me, he, he let me in a little bit, but I, I guess in a somewhat cryptic way. I, I knew the broad strokes, but I didn't know how we were going to get there, and I was certainly surprised. <laughs> um, every time I read the script, I was completely blown away and surprised and um, in, in unexpected ways. So I never, even though I had an idea of, of what was going to happen to her in, in terms of the feeling of what was going to happen to her, but I certainly didn't know plot-wise and the details of it, and I never, ever would have expected that she ends up where she ends up and that she goes the places that she goes throughout the season. Where does she end up? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Worth a shot. She's a warrior. You know, don't yeah. don't mm. underestimate Nikki Swango. I would never bet against a woman right. named Nikki Swango. I think that's smart, yeah. <laughs> certainly is embodied by Mary, as embodied by Mary. Yeah, I think one of the nice elements of, of uh, you know, the sort of ensemble, um, all these characters on a collision course is is that, you know, because we've shown that even the smallest characters can have these big moments, you, you really can't 
predict who's going to rise, who's going to fall, um, and you know who's going to survive. Uh, and, and so I think that that it creates this really uh, exciting dynamic of the unpredictability from week to week to say, you know, who's still standing and who's still going and who's going to turn it around and, and, you know, who do we underestimate that we shouldn't have and who are we rooting for? Because, you know, we're in this weird moral universe where every character makes these choices and and, um, sometimes some are punished and some are rewarded. And, you know, so I think it's, you know, you never know when... People are going to take a bad turn. Yeah. I think that's something we've all grown to learn watching through Fargo, through the three seasons. Does it get easier or harder for you to kind of reinvent this world as you create it season to season? You know, I, I try not to think about it in, in that way. I think that that um, I just chase the story, you know. So whether it's two men in an emergency room and then you think, well, who are those guys and what happens next or – a woman drives home with a man sticking out of the windshield of her car, or in this case, two brothers with a feud over a childhood, you know, inheritance, and 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 then you start to populate the universe, and then you sort of say, all right, well, where is it going to go? And and you know, I am aware of not wanting to repeat myself, but but you know, I sort of find these characters, they do what they what they want to do, and and you know, certainly the addition of David Thewlis and and you know what what started as a brother feud becomes this much larger sort of story about greed and the things that people do for money so and and you also you embraced a thematic of the truth is what we say it is Mm -hmm. and um, we all kind of woke up in the world we live in today and that resonates I think in ways that you never expected Mm -hmm. you never wanted but that examination of truth really adds a, a kind of a wonderful layer to what characters are representing the truth, what characters are saying the truth. It's a, yeah. another dynamic. Yeah, next week in episode five, there's a great scene that Mary gets to play um, with Michael Stuhlbarg about the true story and the other truth. And, you know, it's this sort of, I mean, I, I've started saying that irony without humor is violence, and I think there is something to that, which is like when it stops being funny, you know, this idea that, that um, you know, she's not kidding around and he's not kidding around, but there's something so absurd in the conversation they're having, and yet it's, you know, that's that's the sweet spot, I think, of, of that tone of voice, that Cohen tone of voice, yeah. Have you gotten more comfortable with the Cohen tone of voice? I mean, you clearly embraced it pretty strongly, pretty well the first season, but it feels like you're having more fun playing with it. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know, it's there. It's not like there's a switch that gets flipped or or even a sort of mantra or state of mind. It's you know, I just sort of try to write the show and these characters, and and a lot of it is about language and and the the way that people speak and and you know the fact that no one really completes a sentence and and there is this you know Murray Applebaum discovery play kind of like slightly dated quality to the language etc and and um, I don't know it's just uh, it's interesting because then you know I go make Legion or I or I work on fiction and it's I don't find that tone of voice creeping into other things. It it really is when you sit down to create this world. That's the, that's the what comes out. Mary, how is it for you as an actress stepping into this world? So wonderfully easy <laughs> because <laughs> it's just so good. And I've always been such a huge fan of the movie and 
Coen Brothers and this tone in general, this sort of slightly absurd, slightly heightened version of, of real life that somehow feels more real than things that are sort of just kind of basic drama to me. There's something that feels more, it speaks to me more, this tone, I think, than um, melodrama or things that take themselves too seriously. I love the dark, tragic humor of all of it, and it feels more reflective of how people really are in some way. <clears throat> so... Um, for me, it was just like, oh my god, the words feel so good to say. The characters are so much fun. Um, so yeah, what I keep saying is that it just was so. When it's this good, it's just so easy. Um, so it feels sort of weird that the the easiest things are the ones that people sort of compliment you the most on, and you just want to be like, it was the easiest. <laughs> yeah, and it's true anything. of everybody. I mean, we, you know, I would be on set. I only directed that first hour, but um, you know, you'd watch you and Mary play a scene, or you'd watch. Carrie Coon play a scene and you go I should give them a note because good directors give notes but maybe just do it again like you know everyone just seemed to just really David Thewlis and Michael Stuhlbarg it's like it's the the roles just fit them and, and I just tried to then get out of the way This week's episode is brought to you by Warner Horizon Unscripted Television's smash hit Little Big Shots, from executive producers Steve Harvey and Ellen DeGeneres for NBC. Two of the biggest names in comedy team up to showcase some of the smallest talent in the world in this comedy variety series hosted by Harvey and featuring the world's most extraordinary kids for your Emmy consideration in all categories. I can't believe we've gotten this far into the podcast without talking about Ewan. How did you even come up with the idea of Ewan playing dual roles? Well, it was just the initial idea. I mean, it's there was no separation of it. As I said, it's there's always a setup. It's two men in an emergency room or a, a guy sticking out of a windshield. And in this case, it was two brothers played by the same actor whose father left them, you know, a car and a stamp collection. And I don't know why it was played by the same actor, but, um, you know. Why not? <laughs> well, it's, I do think that, because I've had to think about it since, and I do think there is something to the idea of a family resemblance. You know, the fact that you look at both of them. And because Ewan was willing to shave his head and, and, and do such an extreme look for Ray, it meant that also for Emmett, we could give him a look that wasn't his own look. And he wore brown contact lenses and, and different hair than we'd seen him. So neither of them really look like him, but they do look like each other. And I think it, it makes it harder to decide that one's a good guy and one's a bad guy because you see them in each other. And, and so I, I do feel like it's really powerful in that in that way of like, you know, I mean, Ray is clearly the underdog, but but Emmett is also the underdog in his story with David. So, you know, I think that that's part of the fun of it is, is you know, there are logistical challenges, but even those aren't too. It's not like it's a big action show where they're both, you know, wrestling on the top of a moving train or anything. You know what I mean? So it's sort of like you shoot it the way you shoot everything else. You just have to change him over and then do the scenes again. And I think the instinct that Noah had was um – all right, if we're going to have one actor play both roles, then we're going to get someone like Ewan McGregor to say, this is a challenge, I love it, I want this. Um, and that's exactly what we ended up with. We got our first choice. Um, so that process was a really, really short process. Um, let's see if Ewan McGregor would be interested. Um, and, 
You know, probably about a 90-minute transformation when we were shooting from uh, from Emmett to Ray. Um, and I think not only the physical transformation, but he needed time to make the transformation of the character. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it was a challenge, yeah. but we like challenges. That's what we do. See jumping off a cliff earlier. Exactly. <laughs> And the technology has certainly gotten a little bit better about having them in the same scene. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's almost you don't have to think about it really. You know, I mean, I'll, clearly you could just shoot a locked off camera for a scene where they're talking to each other, and that's easy. And then usually there's a techno dolly shot that kind of marries them with with movement in it. But it's really, I mean, you just want to film it the way you film everything else, so that it doesn't stand out. You're not calling attention to it. But you know, I mean, it does require you need to find not just doubles. You know, but acting doubles, and and um, we had one good one, and and one that I thought may have been the worst actor I'd ever seen, and that was also a testament. <laughs> <laughs> Am I supposed to say that? Out one of them. No one heard you. But that was We're also good. a testament to Ewan's ability to sort of ignore that person, <laughs> hear his own performance as the other character in his head, and act against that, and that that was really impressive to me. Mary, how much fun are you having playing against Ewan? Too much fun. I mean, that's why we've come up with our, our spinoff ideas. We can't, we can't let go of it. Um, yeah, it just, again, it was like the most effortless thing. It just worked. I think we both approached um, the roles and our jobs in the same way, which is the, just like a ton of enthusiasm and excitement and um, just loving what we do and feeling so lucky to be playing these roles and to be performing these scenes and stuff. So I think it made it easy for us to just like have the most fun Ever. It really was yeah, some of the most fun I've, I've and you, ever had. You could feel that on set. Um, uh, the directors and, and the entire crew felt the energy of what was, uh, what was happening uh, and the fun of it. Um, you know, it, it's, Fargo is a dark show, but we also never get too far away from the humor. Um, characters are physically and emotionally bundled, and then Noah manages to brilliantly unbundle them. And that's the fascination. That's the lean-in quality to Fargo. It is the charm that no one is ever who you seem, who you think they are. You know, we meet Carrie Coon. You think, okay, I know what a female sheriff is in this world. But we, I'm getting the sense that, no, there's some surprises to come with her. Yeah, I think, you know, there is this expectation. And, and FX sort of was guilty of it as well, of, of assuming that because she was a female cop in this world that she was Marge or Molly or, you know, and and – I didn't necessarily set out to make her that different, but that's the tone of voice that came out, which was that unlike, um, you know, Marge or, or Molly, who were women who lived in worlds that made sense to them, you know, um, uh, and then they were exposed to this crime and everything kind of darkened and twisted and the rug was pulled out from under, you know, Carrie Coon's character, the rug was pulled out from her a while ago and she so she's off balance already and and so she did she just came onto the page as a more kind of taciturn and a little grumpier i mean she still had the minnesota nice thing but she wasn't gonna you know she was gonna do what she was gonna do and i think that was part of the what's made it really great to see her is that is that you know unlike some of these other characters where you feel like the metal is going to be tested. Like, you can tell that she's almost itching for a fight, which I think is, you know, it's fun to start to put her in rooms with other characters and let her get that going. 
Right. We're at this place now in the season where the ensemble starting to come together. Everyone's on a collision course and things, yeah. are, things are getting interesting. Yeah. The five movies we were making are, are now three movies mm-hmm. and soon to be one movie, you know, because everyone's <laughs> like on the collision course. So, yeah. But it is. I mean, it's fun. It's always fun to show because I screened the first two for you guys. Um and, you know, everyone is in a different movie. I mean, you work with Ewan primarily for the first two or three, four hours. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then you, you see, oh, yeah, Carrie Coon is also in this. And she's doing her thing over here. And then there's David Thewlis and everybody. And then for to sit and watch how it's all assembled and everything. I mean, you can speak to it as well. But. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's been that's been one of the joys about it is getting to watch all the other stories unfold, you know, from week to week and seeing all the things I wasn't there for and being such a fan of everybody on the show and getting to watch David work and Carrie work. And and then as the season goes on, without giving anything away, getting to have little tastes of working with everybody a little bit more and being on that collision course, it was like an incredibly exciting thing to, to wonder when it was going to happen, if it was going to happen, how it was going to happen. Um, and just to be like, it was so tantalizing, the idea of getting to work with all these different people and wondering how we were going to be coming together. Without giving things away, did it come together in ways that you expected, or no. No, it didn't expect? <laughs> oh God, no, um, I I didn't expect any of it. It's it's so, um, you know. I mean, it all it 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 all makes sense at the end of the day in a in a, in a very Fargo way. But I don't think anyone's gonna um, see it coming or. Um, feel like they they knew this was going to happen you know and in, in, in any any way you know plot wise or tonally i think it it's still the fargo world but i think it's a very different world than the last couple seasons have been so i think people are going to be very surprised is this fargo world going to intersect or collide with the previous fargo worlds from the first two seasons um you know i i like the idea that that you you know we reward people um that there is something that they like about that. Um, but it can't be too obvious. I, you know, clearly the second year was a literal prequel to the first year or so. So it had all of those those qualities. But even so, at the end of it, we saw, we learned some things, you know, about, we saw some characters that, that uh, we hadn't necessarily expected to. This year it's a lot subtler and it, and it comes a little later. And I really wanted, you know, after that direct correlation to let this be its own thing and stand on its own feet. But then I think, you know, if you if you delay it long enough, then it, when it comes in, the connection, it's a really rewarding moment. So you'll, you'll see something. I don't want to say what, but something good. <laughs> I'm getting lots of smiles and nods around the table. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and look, if you come to Fargo Year 3 for the first time and you've never seen the – the Coen's movie. You've never seen one or two. doesn't matter. It's a thoroughly wonderful experience. But as Noah said, there's a little bit more of a gift and a, and a deeper engagement if you know some of the past. I'll even take hearing Billy Bob Thornton's voice. Yes. That's yeah. <laughs> a nice touch. That was a very nice touch. <laughs> yeah, it was lovely. I called him and asked him if he would do it. And he's, you know, he was, he was thrilled to, to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, we had Martin Freeman's voice last year uh, as the voice of the book. Um, and so I, I like that, that, you know, you can play with those elements. I mean, it is that what I really wanted to look at this year, this idea that we tell people it's a true story every week and it's not true at all. Um, and then you start to play with those things like, well, it's a true story, but it's not true. So 
we're hearing the voice of a character from year one who's dead but so how does that play into the is that true or is that not true or i i mean i I think it's fun to kind of push the boundaries of storytelling in general to to make people think about the show you certainly had fun with that last season with a ufo this season we've seen some animation are we going to be seeing more of that this season uh that's it for the animation um um but yeah there's some other there's some other elements that that um are thought provoking i would think um and uh you know but hopefully never to the point that it feels gimmicky or it distracts from the overall um you know drive of the story but but i do think there is a sort of parable quality to these stories you know and joel and ethan's work in general in that there's stories within stories and there's always something i mean even lebowski has this you know this weird western narrator right who intersects like it's never clear exactly why he's telling the story or what he you know there is this sense of stories within stories and parables and and um uh you know so i think that that that's what makes it more than just a crime story right is that there is something also larger philosophically about it that's that's becomes unpredictable and and fun what does that mean for you creatively to be able to sort of, you know, stretch your wings and fold that into the story? Uh, you know, I remember early season two when we were breaking story and the um, executives from MGM came to take me to lunch. And they're like, what can you tell us about season two? And I said, well, we're going to make three fake Ronald Reagan movies and there's a UFO. And they said, no, really, what can you tell us? About? <laughs> you know, there, there's something. I mean, I think there's something to that the fun of it um of the looks on their faces like when they get a script and and the, the script does something that they hadn't expected that's sort of hard they go well what? it takes people a while on some love and i thought we would get a lot more blowback to our ufo in episode nine last year than we did and i was sort of grateful to see that people had bought into our universe to the degree that they thought oh yeah that's interesting as opposed to now they've jumped the shark and they're over the line and and that that didn't make me feel like i had permission to do whatever i wanted but it did it did was rewarding to think that we could make those moves and and that the audience would go with us so we got answers to why gloria has a battle with sensory technology that will become clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's no. I mean, it's not that every mystery in the universe gets answered, but that that one will make sense because that's sort of a character thing. I think we want to. I think we we earned the right over time to understand at least how she how she interprets that. Yeah. Fair enough. And should there be a season four? Are you already planning ideas? Not at this moment, plan. I don't have a thing yet. I mean, it's that's part of what's great about it is it's it's um, it's idea driven and and you know as much as we all uh, understand it's a business. I think part of the the what's nice about partnering with with FX and MGM is that you know we've been really lucky to to keep a quality level as high as as we have, and I think we all feel like that's more important on some level than than the commercialization of of the the artistry of it so that's not to say that if you know six months from now i won't be getting those well what are you waiting for phone calls but it's nice to feel like i can finish this one and then 
Let's see. Well, is there another one? Do I have another idea? But I never want to overstay the welcome or feel like people are like, oh, yeah, it's that Fargo thing that they do. And it's now it's familiar with the accents and all that. We, uh, we have this hope and anticipation that early one morning Noah will step into the shower and he'll start to smile. And that will mean that uh, an idea popped into his head. Um, and you're, and you're that, not going to be there, are you? <laughs> I might be waiting. I might be close by. And, it's a different and, show. Yeah, and and then you know, uh, an hour later, he'll go. Yeah, I think I have something. And and so we don't know when that will happen, but we hope that it will. Um, and then we're all going to go get very cold again. <laughs> exactly. Well, we'll all be waiting and looking forward to it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with all of you. Congratulations again on the great season so far. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's show. We'll be back next time with another great episode. We'll be talking about American crime with John Ridley and Benita Martinez. See you next time. This week's episode is brought to you by the acclaimed Warner Brothers television comedy Trial and Error for NBC. Entertainment Weekly called the show a gift from the TV heavens, and the Los Angeles Times said it was solid and funny, impressively cast. Even Alexander Hamilton loves it. Hamilton creator Lin-Manuel Miranda recently tweeted that he had just finished the incredible first season of Trial and Error and said, I know there's so much good TV right now, but damn, this is good. For your Emmy consideration in all categories.